All right. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. I am so glad that you're here. Excited to worship with you this Lord's Day, to open up God's Word with you and study together to learn more about Jesus, to be transformed by His Spirit. So I'm glad you're here. If you have your Bible, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to pick up in verse 36. Last week, we uh, spent the first, um, or we, we went through the first half of this chapter uh, reading about the schemes of the chief priests and the elders, the betrayal in preparation with Judas. And we noticed that Jesus had uh, knowledge that this was all going to happen, that because the Passover was coming, he knew that his hour had come. So we've moved on from a certain man's house, what it says in the beginning of Matthew 26, uh, on to Gethsemane. Uh, a, a garden on the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. This message that we're going to look at this morning takes place in two scenes, both in the garden. And there we're going to see a lot about Jesus, about prayer, about freedom, about sovereignty, about a lot of things. So my hope is that as we dive in together, uh, looking at God's word, seeing what goes on here at the Garden of Gethsemane, we'll see kind of underneath all of it, this biblical, theological truth uh, that should give us great hope and great encouragement. And that is that in the beginning, one man disobeyed in a garden and it filled the world with brokenness. Today, we're going to see one man obey in the garden and fill the world with hope. So what one man did that led us all to death, another man will undo and offer us life instead. So let me read to you our first section in this passage, and then we'll pray. Starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over to pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we read in your word of a tragic night. An event filled with wickedness and brokenness heartache, betrayal, sorrow, weakness, 
Lord, if we're honest, we might see ourselves in this passage and grow uncomfortable. And yet I pray that while we should, in one sense, look to the failures of the disciples as a way to learn from their mistakes, we pray that you might fix our eyes on Jesus and help us to see that he is always faithful, he is always good, he is always trustworthy, he sees all, he knows all, and he has not lost control, he has not been abandoned, he will not abandon us. So Lord, I pray that you might help us by the power of your spirit to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to recognize that we are transformed into the image of Christ as we continue to behold him in his glory. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. So scene one this morning in the garden is Jesus praying. Jesus praying. He goes to the garden after the last supper, tells the other eight disciples. Remember, Judas has left at this point, so there's eight plus three plus the one. So eight disciples, he leaves behind. He walks further into the garden with Peter, James, and John, and he confesses to them his anguish, his sorrow. And in the midst of Jesus' sorrow, don't miss this, the Son of God, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who created all things by his word, when he finds himself sad, sorrowful, and in anguish, He reaches out for company. It's not good that man be alone. So he's asking for company. He's asking for his friends, his brothers, his disciples to watch with him, to pray with him. And as he's praying in his sorrow, asking the father to take this cup of his wrath away, if there's any possibility, Jesus says, if there's any way for me to not drink this cup, Let's go that way. (laughs) And yet not my will, but yours be done. Meanwhile, as Jesus is in this deep anguish, deep prayer, deep intercession before his father, those three disciples led by Peter, the one who last week proclaimed after hearing that he would fall away, even if I die, I won't fall away. I'll stay with you. I'll remain with you. I'm not going anywhere. And just an hour later, he's asleep. Unable to stay awake to watch with Jesus. So as we read through that passage, you notice that over and over again, Jesus is rebuking them. I mean, look at verse 40. Came the disciples, found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Look at verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's something instructive there for us. Watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples in this case have a desire to obey. It's not like they want to fall away from Jesus. It's not like they don't want to be obedient to his, his call for help, his call for prayer, his call to watch with him. But their desire to obey is being drowned out by the exhaustion that they feel. 
this failure to push through, this failure to practice diligence will contribute to their temptation, Jesus says. Watch and pray that you might not fall into temptation. Now, what are they tempted to do? Well, they're going to be tempted in just a few moments, just a few hours to fall away, right? And Jesus has already told them, hey, you're going to fall away, right? So, So notice the connection there. Jesus is saying, if you would just watch and pray, if you would just remain diligent, if you would just pursue this persistent discipline, then you wouldn't be as tempted when the time comes. So here's here's the point for you and me. Daily discipline of following Jesus in his word, in prayer, and more, those are practice. I mean, we, we call those spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines or practicing our faith. So when the rubber meets the road and our faith is tested in some event or some circumstance in our life, we will not trust in our practice per se, but our practice is where the spirit moves in us to conform us to Jesus. In our practice is where the spirit builds our confidence in God. In our practice is where the spirit prepares us for the tests that come. We don't trust in ourselves, but we we wonder if we will be faithful when the time comes. And the answer is in large part found in, are you faithful today? There's a a common thing that I hear and that I've heard uh, often um, with people who say that they want to go to uh, the mission field. They want to be missionaries. And one of the first questions people get asked when they say that is, well, what does your practice of sharing the gospel with unbelievers look like? Like, what, how, do you, how are you regularly sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus? And sometimes they might say something like this, well, I don't really do that right now because we're in America and because there's access and because the gospel's everywhere. And, but but what, they really, what, what they need is the gospel. And so when I go over there, I'm going to share the gospel. And, and 100% of the time, the response is always, What makes you think that you're going to do out there what you're not doing here? Like, If you're not practicing faithfulness and evangelism when it's easy, what makes you think that you're going to practice evangelism when it's hard? And in the same way, you and I might think about our own disciplines, our own practice of our faith, reading the scriptures, trusting God, praying to him, uh, investing ourselves in the life of the body of Christ. If we're not doing those things when it's easy, under our parents' roof, encouraged by family and friends to do so, held accountable by brothers and sisters who love us. If we're not doing those things now, what makes us think that we're going to do them when it's hard? When we leave our parents' home, when we go off our own way, when we uh, enter into a new season of freedom in life. Jesus is showing us right here in the failure of the disciples that our practices matter. Finally, though, Jesus says that his hour has come. Tells his disciples, look, hey, you can sleep later. Three times you fell asleep. Three times I've rebuked you, but hey, now's the time. See, our betrayer is at hand. We need to go to the second scene, but before we do that, we need to look at Jesus in his prayer. There's so much to learn about Jesus here. But I want to draw your attention in this passage to the humanity of Jesus. Don't miss that Christ experienced real 
emotions and not the emotions that we normally think of, of things that we want to experience, like joy and peace and excitement and contentment. No, he's experiencing grief and sorrow and anguish. The Son of God is on his face in agony over what's about to happen. Now, when we notice in this passage, Jesus experiencing real human emotions, even ones that seem to overwhelm him. I mean, he tells the disciples, I am sorrowful to the point of death. Why is that important? Why is that important for us to see? Well, there's, there's two reasons, I think, why it's important for us to see. Number one, if we're not careful, we'll read the Gospels and think Jesus is some kind of like invincible machine that always is like knows the right thing to say and feels the right way. We, we almost think of him like, this is going to be a little bit of a stretch. Maybe some people know it. Maybe some people don't. But there's a character in uh, the show Star Trek named Spock, all right? And you don't really need to know anything about that except to say that this, this person was conditioned since birth to not be emotional. He's more like a computer than he is a, a, a human. He's, he's more machine-like than person-like. And everything is very analytical. Everything is very data-driven. There's no emotional pull one way or the other. He just gives the logic and makes the decision. And if we're not careful, we'll think of Jesus that way. We'll think of Jesus as this kind of person who's very logical. He knows everything. He knows everybody's thoughts. And so he's just like playing chess. But that's not the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus is fully human, meaning he experiences real human emotions. And so the second, so that's the first reason. We don't want to misread Jesus. But the second reason is we need to know that these emotional experiences are not bugs in human life. Those are features. They're not merely unfortunate side effects of living with a sinfully warped mind and heart. You and I were made to feel. We're made to feel. We need to know the truth, yes. And in Jesus' prayer, we notice that when our feelings and our knowledge are out of sync, we go to what we know. So when you feel a certain way that's out of whack or out of sync with what you know to be true, Jesus is modeling for us in his prayer that we lean on what we know because our feelings are often fickle. Our feelings are often misleading. Our feelings are often broken by sin and tainted by sin. And yet he still feels. It's not either or. So I'm going to put this on the uh, screen. Uh, I think this is, yeah, John L. Dagg. One of the first Southern Baptist theologians about 250 years ago wrote this. He said, religion is not confined to the intellect, but brings into exercise the strongest feelings of the heart. Love to God and delight in his will and works have been shown to be essential elements. And these are affections which do not play on the surface, but move the soul from its lowest depths. Here's the key. If in our study of religious truth, we have proceeded thus far without feeling, without strong feeling, our labor has been unprofitable and we would do well to begin anew. I think Dag has it exactly right. 
We lean into what we know, and our knowledge gives us the categories and the capacities to feel rightly, but we feel nonetheless. And so, just very quickly, there's, again, this is a little bit of a stereotype, but there's, I think some general principles play out here, some cultural realities here, that largely the ladies in the room you're going to be more tempted to overemphasize your feelings at the expense of what you know. You're going to want to be directed by your feelings instead of looking at your feelings as indicative of something that's going on. Men, however, you guys are going to be tempted and conditioned to act as if you have no feelings and not allow them to have any kind of factor in the way that you live your life. Both of these are wrong. Both of these are not biblical. We see in Jesus this marriage of knowing and feeling, of thinking and feeling strongly. We need both. We also notice that this prayer seems to make a distinction between the will of the Father and the will of the Son. Look at verse 39. He says, uh, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus clearly says to his father, not as I will, but as you will. So what's going on here? Because we as Christians believe there's one God. And that one God exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is the Son. He's speaking to the Father, but there is one God. And historically, throughout all of Christian history, and there have been a lot of conversations and ecumenical creeds who have all said this, in God, the one God, there is one will. There's one will. So how is it that Jesus can say to the Father, not my will, but yours? That seems to suggest there's more than one will. We need to remember, and I think this passage is telling us this, that Jesus is fully divine. He is the Son of God, the eternal Son, eternally begotten of the Father, eternally existent in the love of the Father and the Spirit forever, from forever to forever. And yet, Jesus is fully human. Jesus here is showing that he is perfectly conforming his humanity, his human will, to the divine will. Rather than choose what seems easier or better, Jesus, in his humanity, chooses to submit to the will of God. So then the human will of Jesus, as well as the divine will of God, are distinct and yet the same. This is good news for us. You may think, like, that's really hard to understand, and it is. But it's good news for us because it means that our wills, our volition, our capacity to act is part of what the Son of God took on when he took on human flesh. And because he redeems all that he takes on, you and I have hope that as followers of Christ, united to him by faith, that not only will our minds be transformed, not only will our hearts be transformed, but our very wills, our decision-making capacities will be transformed into conformity with God. Last thing here, 
about prayer. Notice that Jesus is honest with his father about his sorrow. And he's honest regarding the upcoming experience. So he's teaching us it's okay to be honest with God. When you pray, don't think that you're hiding anything. Like prayer is not a time for you to be strong. It's not a time for you to have it together. It's not a time for you to say what you think God wants you to say. It's a time for you to be honest. Like we, we think that we're praying to God the same way that we're talking to like a friend. And what I mean by that is we often don't tell our friends the whole story. We often don't tell our friends the things that make us fear the most, or we often aren't vulnerable all the way with friends, even good friends. And the reality is we can do that because our friends are not omniscient, right? They don't know everything. Now, sometimes you have friends who are good enough and know you enough that when you say something, they go, "Mm, I just don't think that's it. But you cannot hide from God. There's nothing in your heart, there's nothing in your mind that he has not seen fully. And so Jesus is modeling for us honesty. I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. You may think that that's sinful, sacrilegious. Jesus is honest and yet without sin. We also notice Jesus' repetition over and over and over. He goes to the Father and says the same thing. Keeps praying, keeps asking, keeps bringing himself to the reality that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. You cannot... No matter what you've experienced in this world, no matter what you've experienced at the hands of friends or mentors or parents or family members, you cannot, with your prayers, bug God. You cannot annoy him with your prayer. He invites you to come over and over and over So now we have to go from the sleepy disciples to the betrayer. Let's keep moving. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you, not, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. 
Then all the disciples left him and fled. So we move from Jesus praying in the garden to Jesus betrayed in the garden. So picture the scene. It's the middle of the night in a garden on the side of a mountain. And a crowd of soldiers led by Judas Iscariot comes across Jesus and the disciples. It's the week of the feast in Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Kidron Valley. So plenty of people would have gathered from around the known world, huddled up in a place like the Mount of Olives, in a place like the Garden of Gethsemane, to make their commute into the city much shorter each day. So through the crowds and through all of the other people, Judas finds and kisses Jesus, greeting him as the rabbi, just like he did last week. But that kiss, usually a sign of endearment, a sign of honor, a sign of respect, is now the sign of his betrayal. Peter, the ever-passionate one, we know it's Peter from John's account, sees what's going on, draws his sword, and cuts off Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest. Jesus stops the violence and appeals to his power to stop all this if he wanted to by calling forth angels from heaven. So we need to make no mistake in this scene. Jesus did not have his life or his freedom taken from him. He laid it down. Jesus, of all the characters in this scene, is in complete control. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power is not bound up by the arms of some band of soldiers in the middle of the night. Jesus rebukes the crowd, and as he's taken away, the disciples flee out of fear. It's a wild scene. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of characters, and a lot of motivations at work. So the crowds, right? They're basically temple police. The chief priests and the elders uh, got these people to go with Judas to go find Jesus and bring him into custody. And they're just doing the bidding of the religious leaders who give them power and give them money and give them some influence and give them some security. Judas, he's in it for gain. He's in it for money. He got 30 pieces of silver out of this. He's going to make good on his betrayal. The disciples are filled with fear, falling away when Jesus needed him most because they risked death if they stayed with him. So rather than risk death by staying with Jesus, they were led by their fear and fell away. And Jesus, in the center of all this, willingly submits to their abreast. Now, why do I point all this out? Why do I point out the motivations and the characters? Because we need to talk about the freedom of their actions based on their desires. Ultimately, all of these people did what they wanted to do the most. Their desires dictated their actions. Now, their desires are shaped by information and belief. But in the heat of the moment, what leads in our time of trial, in our time of testing, what leads is not our head, but our heart. In other words, there's an explanation for all of the actions that we've seen in this story. We do what we want. 
We've made free decisions and we're responsible for those decisions. So Judas is responsible for his betrayal. The disciples are responsible for falling away. And on and on we go, all the way to today. You and I bear responsibility for our actions. Now, yes, we are acted upon by various circumstances, good and bad, things that happen to us. Our lives are bound in certain ways based on where we are for sure. But we are responsible for our actions. And yet, mingled through this text is another compatible, mysterious reality. These men are free and God is sovereign. He's sovereign. He's in control. His decree is invincible, unstoppable. All that God has willed for his creation down to the tiniest atom and quark and whatever things are smaller than that. All that God has willed for his creation will meticulously come to pass. And this is the doctrine of divine providence, that God will bring about his creation to his appointed ends for that creation. It's how Jesus can say when he's rebuking Peter in this text that these things must be so for the scriptures to be fulfilled. God's word is sure. God's word is trustworthy. God's word is unstoppable. He says it again to the crowds that they're doing these things. They're acting in this way. Yes, because they want to, but also so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Now, why is this important? First of all, because you and I need to see that scripture does not feel the tension that you and I might feel when we think about this topic. When we think about well, I'm free to make decisions. I'm not coerced. I decided what clothes to wear. I decided where to stand. I decided this and that and these things and those things. And yet God has written all of my days in his book before one of them comes to pass. The Bible does not feel tension here. It just says it. Even in our freedom and in the freedom of others, God is in control. That's important because it means that nothing in your life is outside of the providential care of a God who is unswervingly for you if you are his child. Like there's nothing that has come to your doorstep that didn't come from God's providential hand. That doesn't mean that you have answers to all of the questions of why God might have brought those things to you. But it does give you something to stand on in the midst of great grief, in the midst of great sorrow. That that the God who allowed these things to take place is way more for my good than I am. Now, I pause here to say that if you are in a pattern of sin or you are the victim of a pattern of being sinned against, I am not saying that the doctrine of providence 
calls on you as a believer to just grin and bear it. That is not what this doctrine is about. If someone is hurting you or taking advantage of you or is causing you to live in fear, God has provided a way of escape. So come talk to me. Come talk to Rasha. Come talk to one of your leaders. That's not what this doctrine is about. But your sufferings are not meaningless. The second reason is that God is moving his creation towards something. We're not just fumbling about in the universe. We're going somewhere. Specifically, we're going towards God. He's moving us towards himself in a place in time where sin will be no more, where suffering comes to a complete end. The sovereignty of God over the betrayal of Jesus in the garden shows us that all of his word is trustworthy from beginning to end. And so that fills us with hope. It fills us with anticipation because even though we're in the dark, even though we're watching the betrayal of the Son of God, even for us when it feels like God is not in control of our circumstances or our future, we lean into what we know. God is here. God is in control. In this story, it's going to get darker. More betrayal. More violence a crucifixion, a dark tomb. But darkness gives way to light every time. And what's true of Jesus in this text, in this passage, in this story, by his grace can be true of you and me. That although the things we might walk through in this life are dark, it will invincibly give way to light. That's gospel truth. That if we trust Jesus, the one who experienced that kind of darkness, it gives us hope. It gives us something to stand on when we walk through darkness ourselves. All of these things come to pass from the providential hand of a good God, a faithful God, a loving and compassionate God. A God who is not the author of sin, who's not the author of evil, and yet turns evil for good. So let me pray, and we'll uh, spend some time discussing this.